what you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences and I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm Scott Chaloner and in each episode I'm joined by a different director, CFO, CEO, chairman, president, government minister and who knows maybe even one day the home secretary depending on how that cabinet office inquiry pans out. The aim here is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make this country work. We discuss everything from the importance of self-confidence and self-esteem to leading a team, and of course the success that makes the endeavour entirely worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Neil McKenzie, the General Manager of Alba Power, a turbine specialist based up in Aberdeen, Scotland. This company handles the overhaul and supply of gas marine and power turbines, as well as decommissioning. After more than quadrupling its turnover between opening its doors in 2003 to mid-2019, the business has recently secured a lucrative 10-year extension to one of its contracts with a petrochemical client based in the United States. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Neil McKenzie. Neil, a very warm welcome to you and thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the air today. Hi. Neil, it's an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the air. Now, you're a business, of course, um, Alba Power, that employs roughly 79 people, I believe, I'm right in saying. Tell me, with the COVID-19 situation at the moment, how have you found it navigating the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's posed some real challenges. Well, yes, as a service industry, uh, we've had to keep production going. So we've taken steps. I mean, our first priority was to ensure our staff and customers are all safe. So what we've done with the the workshop personnel is we split them into two separate shifts with a crossover point to keep the the crossover to minimal and keeping to all the government guidelines. The majority of our office staff, sales and project engineers are all working from home at the moment. Uh, every day we have a call in with each department, make sure everybody's okay and uh, working away on the, what they can do from home. That's quite interesting. And um, have you ever faced challenges like this before in your career? Because it's often said that it is unprecedented time. So is this been very much uncharted territory for yourselves at Alba Power as well? Yes, this is unprecedented for us. Uh, like I say, we're a, a service company to the oil and gas and energy sector, so we have to keep going. Where I have seen an effect on is we've got quite a large field service where we go to customer sites all around the world uh, to carry out installations or maintenance work. Now, that has been restricted with the travel. It certainly seems that that's um, been an issue. I suppose, however, because you're quite a niche business working in a niche industry, I suppose many of the issues that you faced previously have lacked some kind of precedent. So you are, in a way, used to charting your own territory. And has that come as an advantage to you during this time, would you say? Yes, I, I believe so. 
And in terms of the UK government's response to the um, existing crisis in looking to safeguard business with various measures, even though they have prevented many businesses from performing their functions day to day normally, have you been encouraged by what they've been doing as well? Yes, I think there has been good steps by the government. Uh, we are in quite a lucky position where we've been able to keep everybody fully employed. It's really encouraging to uh, to hear that. And of course, um, it hasn't um, all been doom and gloom over at Alba at all, has it? I mean, just um, this month, I believe, a petrochemical client in the US signed a new 10-year contract with you, having worked um, for a decade with the uh, the business. And that's got to be uh, considered some good news. Yeah, that is good news. Uh, we have had some good extensions to our contract. Because a lot of our customers are varied in this trade, so we do do work in the oil and gas, and the oil price will have an effect on that. But we also do a huge amount of work in the energy sector and chemical plant. So our exposure to the oil price is reduced. Mm, certainly good to hear that side of things. And uh, if we think about, uh, Neil, um, Albert Power's um, original parliamentary review article for a moment, just for those listeners um, tuning in who may not have read it, you very much mentioned there that the firm had positive forecasts of the future, considering your market share is always evolving. And has the current COVID-19 situation had an impact on that? We certainly haven't seen any cancelled orders uh, maybe just a few that have moved slightly by a month or so. But I, I think we will still be a positive year for us. Yeah, it's certainly good to uh, hear that um, it's still looking like um, it's positive um, news and positive ambitions. And you also discussed in that same review article as well, your ambitions to expand into Asia. Um, I believe there was a contract in Vietnam that was already in place. And is that something you'll still be looking to do over the next uh, few months and couple of years as well? Yes, definitely, 100%. We're looking at locations all around the world where we want to expand our presence. Certainly uh, fantastic to hear this, all of this ambition um, in the face of the uncertainty. Um, now, Neil, the, one of the purposes of uh, this podcast series is to really bring together a diverse um, range of perspectives on leadership and bring that into greater focus. But if we think about leadership just for a moment, what does that word leader actually mean to you personally? Well, uh, for me personally, it means that we've got to show our customers and staff that we take any situation seriously and we will guide them through it to, to the best benefit of the personnel and the company. And how? Um, yeah. So, what, like I said earlier on, where we split the workshop project engineers and sales, they all have their own manager in each department who keeps each department updated every day of what we are doing and the reasoning behind it. Certainly seems as if there's um, a real established structure there. Um, if if we were to talk about your own leadership model then, uh, Neil, how would you uh, describe that? Uh, that's, that's quite a difficult question. <laughs> Would you say that it's quite people orientated? Because, of course, you've mentioned there um, quite a little bit of focus on the people um, around you and really kind of trying to bring the yeah. best out in them. So I would say that's probably fair to say, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, we're 
small to medium company, you know, 79, 80 people. Uh, although we're part of the Salsa group, that's our parent company, we still do have a very much family feel about this company. You know, <clears throat> like to make sure that everybody knows how important they are to the business. And that's quite important, isn't it? Because it's those firms that maintain that very kind of close-knit family feel that will be, in a way, reaping the benefits at the moment because the people that they um, that will be working for them remotely will just be getting on with their work and mucking in because they're very much bought into the culture of the uh, the business in a way and they're really helping move toward that common goal. Yes, I very much believe that. And I think in the whole any time in business that it pays off to make sure everybody's engaged. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. And we often hear during this period as well that it's proven to be a little bit of a learning curve for uh, businesses and governments as well, of course. Um, Do you think it's possible to actually be an employee or indeed a good leader to the best of your ability without being thrown out of your comfort zone and having to deal with difficulties and build resilience at times like this? You know, I believe there's always things that you're learning. You know, no matter how long you've been in a position of leadership, there's always new challenges. I mean, this is a typical example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody's ever really um, a finished product as a leader, are they? There is always um, some journey that one still has to go on, even when they're in a leadership role, to learn more about themselves, learn more about the people they work with, and essentially improve, isn't there? Definitely, 100%. And if we think about that idea of learning and development just for a moment, do you think that one can actually learn to become a great leader or do you have to be born with certain qualities to some degree? I think there's an element of both, to be honest. So what sort of um, qualities do you think have to come from within in that instance? Uh, I think you have to be quite a positive person. Uh, quite good at problem solving and be able to give good direction. Mm, because, and yeah. There's a lot of courses you can go on. Uh, the Institute of Directors are good at doing leadership courses, which adds to that ability. You know, it brings it out more than you. Yes, for certain. I think there is certainly um, means of developing um, one's inner abilities, I suppose, because you can learn always learn a lot more, especially about things like human psychology, can't you, which can really help with your people management skills. And that's a vital part of uh, being a leader and managing a business as well. Yes. And experience. I mean, you can't teach experience. It comes with time. And that's a big factor as well. Mm. So do you think experience is in many ways, one of the greatest teachers? Uh, I certainly think it's up there, yes. And it links back yeah. to what we said uh, before, doesn't it? This idea that when people have that experience of going out of their comfort zone, being stretched and having to really test themselves, that really, really helps in their development as well, doesn't it? And it's a real part of that. Definitely. Like I said, you're always learning. I think that's absolutely right. And um, with regards to leadership in general, uh, Neil, do you think that we do recognise it and indeed celebrate it as much as we should do in the UK? Um, the reason I ask that is because I think there's a temptation culturally in this country to think of leadership as being associated with celebrity, politicians, sports personalities, those sorts of individuals. And in business sometimes, I think good examples of leaders can often go under the radar in a way. 
I agree with you there. I think some of that is under the radar. Uh, but I think within your own company, it's important that your, your own staff appreciate your leadership and they're a big part of that, of making the company a success. Exactly right. And it's important to get the people around you to essentially buy into the greater goal of the uh, the business. And part of that as well is instilling a positive culture and that falls upon the shoulders of the leader, doesn't it? Their responsibility to uh, to do that. Yeah. And I do believe, you, you know, I've been in leadership for quite a long time now, that it is getting better as time moves forward. I mean, if you go back to like the 90s, 90s, I do think it's better. Like, I think people generally are more engaged. It's certainly been my experience. And if we channel your experience for a moment, Neil, if you were to offer some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, what advice would you tell them to take on board? To make sure they keep their teams informed and make them feel they're an important part of the company. Which they all are. Uh, a company doesn't revolve around one person; it's a it's a team effort. I think that's absolutely right. Remembering that it's about the collective rather than just the individual, because I think some leaders can almost be a little bit um, hesitant, as it were, to delegate responsibilities and kind of letting go of responsibility early on, and especially in startup businesses, is quite important, isn't it? It's a huge part of letting the business develop to the next level, trusting other people with responsibility to carry out certain tasks. Yeah, and it. It, it can be quite difficult that, you know, if you start with 10 people and then you're up at 80 people, it it can be quite challenging letting go, but you've got to learn to do it and trust people. Exactly right. And I think it's also not just about getting the best out of those people around you, but also picking people who can get the best out of you. And that comes down to not just picking your employees, but also picking your mentors as well. Yes. Because I think surrounding yourself with positive individuals in that sense is um, of huge importance because leaders may be under a lot of pressure because a lot of people um, underneath them, their employees, for example, will be looking to them for the answers constantly. However, a leader has to recognize their own limitations at the same time and understand that they won't always have all of the answers. And again, that ties back into that wider learning process that we talked about, doesn't it? That again, you're never a ready-made leader. You're always learning on the job. Definitely, and that's part of the, the team building, I think. Absolutely right. And um, when we talk about, of course, uh, team building being really important at Alba Power, for example, are there any sort of techniques that stick out that you've used to maybe keep that sort of team mentality together? Yeah, well, I mean, we have uh, a, a monthly talk where we all get together. That's everybody in the whole company. Uh, we've put, we would call a town hall meeting, update everybody. So the, the individual managers do that, and then every quarter I do it as well. You know, we, like you've mentioned before, we've got an apprentice scheme here, and actually quite a few of the employees have children of their own in our apprentice scheme. That's really interesting because it keeps them, the company very much um, in the family, literally, doesn't it, rather than just having that family mentality? Yes, yeah, it does. 
Yeah, and I do think there's a great deal of uh, merit in that. And I think it's important, especially at times like this, when everybody is working from a distance and not in an office environment, to also maintain human contact. Because in a way, I think we've taken that for granted prior to uh, this outbreak, haven't we? And it can be hugely important just keeping up to date with everybody, just to keep morale um, up and running. Definitely. That's why we have a call every morning, every department. And it's not just purely about business, it's to make sure everybody's okay uh, and how they're doing through this crisis. Yeah, I think in some ways when you organise catch-ups with employees, for example, as a leader, especially in this context, it's good to maybe take business out of the equation a little bit and just focus on them, how they're feeling, and just making sure they're in the right headspace because that's really important, isn't it, Um, to make sure that the business is still going to be getting results and people are working to the best of their abilities. Definitely. And you do have a a care, a duty as an employer to look after your staff. I think that's absolutely right. And um, I think a few leaders sometimes who may take on a little bit more of a draconian approach can quite easily forget that responsibility, can't they? Yeah, I think that's uh, from the old days, to be honest. Yeah, I think um, we've started to really see um, a um, a move away from that. And it's good to see much more people-orientated businesses really coming to the fore in that sense. And we've talked a lot about how that's borne out uh, within Alba Power. But what would you say, Neil, have been some of the key influences behind that way of running the business, would you say? I think it's been self-evolving. You know, we've seen the benefits from keeping everybody inside. And starting as a very small company and having this growth and involving everybody in it, that's, I think that's where it's come from. And quite interestingly about some business leaders as well, there are a lot of people who understand that they were going to be running their own businesses for quite some time, quite early on in their life and quite early on in their career. Whereas others never really envisioned being in a leadership position and end up having it sort of thrust upon them in a way. Um, Did you imagine quite early on that you would end up being in a leadership position in your own business eventually? Yes. Yeah, I did quite want to do that from an early, an early start in my career. Yeah. And what made you go down that road, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I think it was just part of being quite efficient at what I do and, you know, having an ambition. And I think it links back to what we said earlier about those qualities that come that have to come from within in a way, doesn't it? Um, I think that self-motivation, that drive and that willingness to persevere and to succeed, of course, those are the kind of things that you can't necessarily teach. People can pick up skills, but that sort of thing, that comes from within, basically. You have to be, in a way, born with that. Yeah, and I think you need a degree of self-belief as well. Absolutely right. And I think with some people that can sort of fall by the wayside a little bit because there are some leaders of businesses out there, um, especially in the younger generations who might shy away from taking risks, even calculated risks due to a fear of failure and trying to shield themselves from criticism. But really what we should be saying is be willing to embrace failure, embrace mistakes and learn from them. Yeah, definitely. You can definitely, uh, nobody will be right 100% of the time and you learn from failure. Absolutely. And um, is there anything that 
you've really taken on as a learning curve, not just in this uh, pandemic, but also earlier on in uh, your career and running Alba Power that sticks out? I think being able to, you know, hand over is a big part of it. And listening to what other people's suggestions, ideas, and taking on board for the, you know, the benefit of everything. Mm. And we talked about as well the sort of advice that you would give to younger aspiring leaders. But if you could go back in time and speak to a younger version of yourself, Neil, is there anything that you would tell the younger you to do differently based on the experience you have now? Well, what I would say is to give it a try. Because if, even if you do feel you'll learn from it, then, you know, keep going. I think that's very sound advice indeed. And if we remain focused, not just on the here and now, but also on the future, Neil, before um, we do wrap things up on today's programme, um, what do you envision in the next 12 months for yourself and for Alba Power? And what do you hope to achieve in that time, not just in terms of navigating COVID-19, but also beyond the pandemic too? Well, yeah, getting, getting past this uh, pandemic at the moment, and then to see the continued growth of all the power, you know, we've got good, strong plans to expand around the world. Uh, so this year, I'd really like to see a big push in that and keep our growth on the right track. It's good to hear that there's certainly um, some ambition there for the uh, the future because there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment and the long term sometimes might not be, be quite um, easy to, uh, to see what's going to happen. But I think as a business, you have to be able to plan, don't you? You can't just wait essentially for the government to tell you what's going to happen. You've got to be proactive. I'd definitely be proactive. And striking a balance between proactivity and reactivity as well has been quite a bit of a challenge for some hasn't it during this time because let's be honest it's quite easy to get sucked into panic mode but being able to maintain a cool head at this time is hugely important more than any other time oh definitely definitely you've got to be looking to the future because we will get through this at some point and you've got to try and make sure you're in as strong as a position as you can be Absolutely. And um, I think it would actually be really, really beneficial um, in a few months time, uh, Neil, to actually maybe have you back on the air once we start seeing the fog lifting, just to catch up on how the business is doing and what opportunities have um, arisen in the uh, the market. But for now, I have to say it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. No, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Neil. Thanks ever so much. Take care. Thanks very much. That was Neil McKenzie, General Manager of Alba Power. I hope you all listening enjoyed the interview and, of course, learning more about how the whole Alba Power team is continuing to raise standards even throughout this challenging time. Coming up next on the programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively and i hope that the leaders council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common a synergy in terms of what they're delivering whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever uh, will be able to see that there's a a a good outcome from knowing the sector better linking with people not just geographically locally but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, Mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a credible opposition nor an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. As always, it's been a pleasure both listening to and learning from our guests. I and Matthew O'Neill hope you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, since sadly all of the pubs remain closed, Matthew and I will be sitting in our respective front rooms with a bottle of Merlot and raising a glass to raising standards. Hopefully, we can reoccupy our usual corner in the Westminster Arms very soon. Remember, look after yourselves, stay at home, it does save lives. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.